Roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. What the hell is going on here? Welcome to the Infinite World Podcast. Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of the Infinite Worlds Podcast. I'm your host, Winston Ward, publisher of Infinite Worlds Magazine. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Nick the Tooth. All right, dude, what's going on, man? Yo, yo, yo. Yeah, it is December 2021. It just kind of hit me that we are, uh, we're kind of bumping up against 2022. Man, I know. Like, I remember, <laughs> I remember so clearly recording our episodes at the beginning of this year uh, when we were talking about uh, the election still and like the January 6th shit and all that. Like, it seems like that happened just the other day. And here dude, we are. When we were recording pre-COVID, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's, it's like, dude, yeah. so yeah. much has happened, man. It's so much nuts. has happened. Oh, my gosh. What have you, uh, what have you been uh, reading or watching? Anything good? Uh, well, I watched the live-action Cowboy Bebop series. Mm-hmm. Just heard today that it got canceled. I just uh, after, read that too. After one after one season, uh, which is a disappointment to me because I thought it was pretty great. Personally, a lot of fun. Was it exactly like the anime? No, but you know, how in the world are you going to make a live action version of an anime and make it just like the anime? It doesn't make sense for people to expect that. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. I enjoyed it. I thought it was really fun. My wife and I watched it. She loved it. When I told her that it got canceled today, this morning before she went to work, I could just see like the look, the crestfallen look on her face. Aww. She was so bummed. Besides that, I've been um, watching Star Trek The Next Generation like a motherfucker lately. I go through phases where that's all I want to watch. I know. Is that too. show. I know we, we've, we talked about this, you know, uh, <laughs> and we're both big fans or whatever, but like I'll, I'll, I'll watch one episode and then like after I watch an episode, putting anything else on, I don't know. For some reason, it doesn't, it doesn't feel as comforting. There's something really comforting oh about it. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's so true. I had like an ear problem for the past like month almost or like three weeks or so. And because of that, my anxiety has been really high because, you know, even though it ended up being not a big deal at all, it's, it was really uncomfortable. And it also like made me worry a lot. So it kind of raised my anxiety up and nothing feels good when you're in the midst of anxiety like Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah, right. <laughs> Such a, a, a balm for anxiety. It's true, man. It's like our uh, like sci-fi lovers, like Downton Abbey, where you're just like, oh, <laughs> yeah. give me some warm tea and and friggin' give me some uh, some next generation. I agree, man. I'm the same way. I also watched four of the Star Trek movies lately as well. Damn. I've been really feeling the check lately. I watched the first five original movies in the past like month or so. Wow. You know, I've just been feeling the check lately. I'm ready for a new uh, big blockbuster, big Star Trek movie. I'm really uh, wondering what they're going to do with that. Because I think it looks like at this point that like the Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto cast has pretty much... They moved on, huh? I think that's run its course now. That the What do they call that? The, um, that's a bummer, man. I like that cast. I don't know that for sure. I'm not claiming that I have some inside source for that, but it's been a while since any of that's happened, and I haven't heard any buzz about that lately. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know uh, what'll happen next, but I'd love to see some more Star Trek. But Oh, man. I've been... You know what I've been watching? I just started uh, watching, again, Raised by Wolves, because they just announced mm. season two, and I really dug that series. Did they uh, give a date for season two? I don't think so. 
I mean, they might have, but dude, I don't, I'm not big on details, so I probably was like, just <laughs> you know what I mean? Where I was like, I don't know, could be next week. What do I know? Right. It just kind of inspired me to go back and kind of watch the watch the season again. I've heard lately that there's going to be a Blade Runner TV series and an Alien TV series. Wow. Both produced by Ridley Scott as well. Damn. Then that could just be Hollywood rumors, and I don't know for sure, but yeah, that's the the buzz I'm getting. I think I would be way more into a Blade Runner because the universe for me is so much bigger. I mean, it's so much more enticing. Like I'm like, oh, I love that universe. You know, especially what you actually kind of want to be in the Blade Runner universe. You yeah. do not want to be in the Alien universe. Oh no, yeah, I'm like, <laughs> no, I don't. I don't want to go there. Where do I want to go? Yeah, yeah. That's, it looks like it sucks with. Waylon Utani running things. You know, though, I, on going back and watching the original uh, Alien, I was shocked at how good the world building building was mm-hmm. at that mm-hmm. point, and I was like, oh, I want to see more of it. But as the with the sequels, I didn't feel that way. Right. But Blade Runner, I'm like, especially with 2049, I was like, man, there are some dope things that I kind of want to, it kind of opened it up even more for me where I was like, yeah, I I'd like to see, see another, they, they, they could do a, another film. As far as I'm concerned, the two films in that franchise are both great. So yeah. you know, I wouldn't mind them even having a sort of a miss just so we could see more of the universe. Yeah, no, that would be cool. But you know, I tell you what, speaking of the fact that it is December, it's time to go back to the future. And that's what we are here for. We are talking about one of the coolest, highest grossing, most, you know, I think more than anything else, one of the most beloved franchises in uh, in sci-fi, right? Absolutely. Part of the thing for Infinite Worlds is, of course, this always sounds pretentious when I say it out loud, but, you know, kind of having like that underground feel. You know what I mean? I'm a bigger fan usually of sleeper hits and cult favorites than I am necessarily of the big Hollywood blockbusters. You know what I mean? My favorite movie is Blade Runner. It did very poorly in the box office. And, you know, that's true of a lot of them that I like. And Back to the Future is definitely as mainstream as a film gets. Yeah. That being said, it is still one of my favorite franchises. It is, the reason it's beloved is because it's awesome. Yeah. As much as I think liking something just because it's the most popular thing is a really lame quality, I equally think disliking something because it's the most popular thing is really lame too. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, and, yeah, for sure. And I, and I think what's cool about sci-fi is that it's this sandbox of all these different types of properties, right? Of different types of stories. And what Back to the Future does so well is it's that really kid-friendly, family-friendly, like just enjoyable, pure popcorn fun thing, which is actually kind of hard to pull off. It is. Right? To make it to where you're like, yeah, I want to watch it, where you're not like, oh, that's for kids. I don't want to watch it. I, Dude, re-watching these movies, all three of them, I was like, damn, that was fun. Yeah. Nothing to me says fun like a hoverboard. <laughs> okay, full disclosure, the very first movie I could remember seeing in theaters was Back to the Future 2. 
And I would have been like six or seven years old when that happened. I might have seen movies before that in theaters and been too young to remember them. But one of the very first things I can remember is the hoverboard scene in Back to the Future 2. You know, it stuck with me for a long time. I probably saw Back to the Future 2. I obviously saw Back to the Future 2 before I saw Back to the Future 1. But that having been so long ago, 30 years ago or so, I have now seen all three movies a bunch of times. And I'm pretty familiar with them. And it's clear to me that the first one is the best one. I think it's clear to everyone. I don't want to put words in your mouth in case you have a different opinion, obviously. No, no. I, I, you know, my experience with watching the movies back in the day was that number one blew my mind. And I was just like, this is so freaking fun. I loved it. I watched back to the two. I didn't like it that much. I was like, man, that didn't feel the same. And, and I think that was one of those situations where my expectations, you know, were a little bit off and they clouded how I saw the movie. Because when I rewatched it right. recently, I was like, oh, I love this. I freaking love this. I don't remember loving it when, when I was much younger. And I don't know why. I feel I like that's going to happen. Well, I mean, because like you say, your, temp- your expectations ahead of time are like so high because Back to the Future 1 was such a success and so beloved. And there was a there was a fair length of time between the two movies, four years. Yeah. So, you know, it had time to settle into the collective consciousness. And because of that, everybody's expectations were really high for the sequel, especially since the sequel had a double the budget. And, you know, it did disappoint people because they were expecting a rehashing. Not They weren't necessarily expecting that. They just had the bar raised so high. And taking Back to the Future 2 all on its own merit is difficult to do. Uh, you know, in that situation. I'm fortunate in that I saw Back to the Future 2 first. Yeah. Do you remember seeing number one after that? How did you feel about when you I don't one? specifically remember when. I probably saw Back to the Future 2 and 3 before I saw Back to the Future. Because they came out back-to-back years. Yeah. Back to the Future 2 came out 89 when I was like 6 or 7. And Back to the Future 3 came out 1990 when I was like 6 or 7 or 8. Somewhere in that time frame. And I probably saw them both in theaters, I expect. And really liked them, really loved those movies, and then later saw the original, and at some point, uh, we probably had the VHS at some point, I assume. And watching number three then, I remember when I went and saw three in the movie theater, I was like, oh, this is awesome. Yeah. I remember seeing three and being like, well, this is a return to form. But dude, what's crazy is that re-watching the three, I didn't feel like that. Like, I didn't feel like it was, I felt like number two was just as good. I don't know why. I, I, think, know I think one of the big differences between one and two that is very jarring is that in the first movie, they go back to the past. And it's easy to recreate the past because you can, you know, observe it. Yeah, yeah. In the second film, they go to the future. And when you do that, you have to envision the future. And I think part of the reason that it was a little harder to relate to for people is because they pictured kind of a quirky, fun, cyberpunky sort of future. But it also had a lot of technicolor and a lot of kind of silly, zany stuff going on in the future, too. Yeah. I think that's kind of hard for people to kind of swallow, even though I feel like now that that movie is more than 30 years old, those futuristic elements don't seem so far-fetched anymore, I think, might have something to do with it. Because a lot of the stuff that's, like, a lot of the technology that's in Back to the Future 2 is around already. I mean, we still don't have hoverboards or yeah. hover hover scooters, I guess. Yeah, what the fuck? it's a bummer but we do have we do have some of the stuff that you know we have self-lacing nikes we do they actually made the self-lacing nikes 
That's a right. kind of a tongue twister. Okay, let's start at the beginning though, right? Yeah. Let's go back and talk about you know how this movie sort of came to be. So Robert Zemeckis grew up sort of in the same class of director as Steven Spielberg. He was uh, like an associate of Spielberg's. They worked together on several things, not worked together specifically, but they did work together, you know, kind of. They were contemporaries, I guess is what you'd say. And he sort of hit the big time with a movie called Romancing the Stone. I don't know if you've ever seen Romancing the Stone. Dude, that movie was so good. At least when I saw it then, I loved it. Yeah, and see, that's the thing is that I saw Romancing the Stone probably before I saw Back to the Future 2. I remember it being one of the earliest movies I saw. Probably it's not really meant for, like, it's not a little kid's movie, I guess, is what I'd say. Uh, But I still liked it. It still was a lot of fun to watch. You know, I had a lot of adventure and everything. I don't even really specifically remember the plot that well. But I remember as a little kid seeing it on TV, or we might have had the VHS of that, too. And enjoying it. So he, he gets off to a pretty good start as a director. And then he made a, makes a couple of movies before that. A movie called Used Cars. I Want to Hold Your Hand. I don't know much about these movies. I don't know them either. Yeah, so I, I'll skip over that. But in 1985, he comes up with the idea. It might have even been before 1985 that he came up with the idea. Along with a screenwriter named Bob Gale. The two of these guys came up with this idea for the story and wrote the script. Which would end up being, obviously, the um, defining film of... well. Hard to say, the defining film for him early in his career, at least. Yeah. It's definitely the one that made him a big time, big famous director that you knew was destined to do big things. So they write this film. The script was rejected 44 times. For Back to the Future? Yeah, the script for Back to the Future. Are you kidding me? It was rejected 44 times before somebody oh before gosh. somebody greenlit. That doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I don't understand either because in retrospect, when you look at it from here in the future, looking back on the past, it seems like an obvious script to make. I mean, it's simple. It's time travel done in a way that doesn't really confuse anybody. It's a very digestible script. It's a family movie. Yeah, it's a family movie. It's, it's fun. Family family values in the sense that it happens like in, well, you know what? I will have have to change that. I was going to say it's family values because they go back to the fifties and this was the whole Reagan era, right? This was the whole moral Reagan era. And I I was explaining to someone the other day, I'm like, you know, if you came up in the eighties, it was like the biggest effing ripoff ever Mm -hmm. for generation X because, you know, the baby boomers got, you know, sex and love and all that shit, free love. Dude, we got eight. Right. <laughs> we got the people, we got the the baby boomers and the hippies that then turned around and said, oh, no, 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 no. We need to have family values now. You need right, to be Christian right. and you need to be da 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 And it was like, you mother. It's really funny because they make fun of Ronald Reagan in that film. In Back yeah. to the Future, in, yeah, in the scene when he, when he goes back to the 50s, he has to meet the 1950s version of Doc Brown, uh, Marty, right. Marty does, and he's like, well, who's the president in the 1980s? And he says, you know, Ronald Reagan, and he's like, the actor? I, you know, <laughs> he, 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 he doesn't believe it. But what's crazy is you're right. This isn't a movie about family values because it's an incest movie. Well, sort of, sort of. There's an illusion to uh, incest. And there's a point I want to make about that here in a minute. I'll get back to that. Uh, okay. Okay. So this movie has a $19 million budget and it got rejected 44 times in a row. Then it gets picked up and then it becomes on a $19 million budget. It earns $388 million and becomes the top grossing film of 1985. This just goes to show you, which I mention every time we discuss a movie, 
This just goes to show you that Hollywood producers are fucking morons that don't know anything about anything. And uh, I really don't like them because they're dumb. <laughs> you know what I mean? And a yeah. lot of Hollywood producers are in the position they are because they produce. It's really, it's, yeah. Something successful. You know what I mean? You know, they were kind of in the right place at the right time. And then they think that they're experts on what the people want after that. Usually it's just some random dude who had a bunch of money to spend on producing a movie who doesn't really know anything about producing movies. And, you know, obviously they talk about that a lot in movies about Hollywood too. But to give you an example, to illustrate that point, here's a great Hollywood producer who's going to get, uh, I'm going to read this whole paragraph to you from the internet movie database listing on Back to the Future. Okay. Universal Pictures head Sid Scheinberg did not like the title Back to the Future, insisting that nobody would see a movie with future in the title. In a memo to Robert Zemeckis, he said that the title should be changed to Spaceman from Pluto, tying in with Marty as a, the Marty as an alien jokes that are in the movie. You got to be kidding. I'm not kidding. Dude. That actually should be its own movie right there. Well, since he was the Universal Pictures head, he kind of had Robert Zemeckis by the short hairs on this one. But Steven Spielberg replied to the memo in another memo where he thanked Scheinberg for sending the wonderful joke memo and saying that everyone got a kick out of it. And Scheinberg was, was too proud to admit that he was serious about it and basically stopped giving input at that point. Oh, my gosh. So one more time. What was the title? The title he wanted to use was Spaceman from Pluto. Oh. Because, you know, in the original film. Yeah, because when they saw him get out of the door. Yeah, they think he's a space person. And the line in the movie where Marty says, I'm Darth Vader from the planet Vulcan. Scheinberg wanted to say... I am a spaceman from Pluto instead. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, that would be where the title wow. would be worked in or whatever. Yeah, this is why producers are not filmmakers. Creators. Yeah, yeah. They're exactly. not creators. Yeah, they're not. I mean, you know, there are definitely well, creative well, producers out there. Don't get me wrong. There are, no, oh, yeah. there are knowledgeable, great producers out there. Don't get me wrong. Please don't think that I think all producers don't know what they're doing. No, I just think that because you're a producer does not mean you understand how filmmaking works. That's all I'm saying. It, it, uh, you know, it, it it kind of, you know, when you talk about that, it just kind of made me think about that old adage about like, write what you know. And it made me, for some reason, it triggered something in me where I'm like, you know, if you think about it, like this movie is so like close to like American graffiti, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, if you think about American graffiti, that was like George Lucas's love letter to the era in which he grew up. This is kind of like that same thing for I'm sure Zemeckis and Spielberg and everybody involved in it where they're like, we can go anywhere we want. Let's go back to the fifties when we were teenagers. That would be really cool. And you know, I I think that's, uh, I think that's dope. So Bob Gale, who basically is the screenwriter for this movie, the inspiration came from Bob Gale discovering his father's high school yearbook and wondering whether he would have been friends with his father as a teenager and he's actually oh, yeah. said that if he could go back in time, he really would go back to see if he would be friends with his dad. Yeah. Is my dad a dork? Is my yeah, dad or is a bully dad. or whatever? Is my mom a hoe? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ultimately, that was really what they were playing with, right? Okay. So since we circle back to it naturally, I'm going to – okay. So one of my favorite episodes of Futurama – I'm a big Futurama fan. Dude, Futurama is so freaking good, huh? It's called Roswell that Ends Well. In this episode, Fry goes back from the year 3000. Okay, Fry's from the 80s. 
Mm-hmm. Right. But he lives in the year 3000 because he got frozen and woke, uh, reawakened, you know, a thousand years later. But he grew up in the 80s and 90s. So he goes back to his grandparents. He goes back to Roswell, New Mexico at, at the events of the Roswell UFO crash. And when he gets there, he finds out that his grandmother is living there. And Fry ends up accidentally getting his grandfather killed or the man he thinks is his grandfather killed and then having sex with his grandmother and therefore becomes his own grandfather which is a plot point on Futurama. So he impregnated his own grandmother. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. I love but, you know, obviously that episode, which was an award-winning episode, it was an award-winning episode of the show. I think it won an Emmy for that episode. Obviously, though, talking about that Emmy-winning television from like 2000, and, or probably, it was probably from the year 2000, obviously, obviously is parodying Back to the Future. From 1985. Yeah. You know, basically what happens in that movie in Back to the Future is Marty goes back in time and his mom, who's the same age as him now, is really trying to get with him really hard. (laughs) (laughs) Like it is making no secret of it. Um, Fortunately for all of the viewers of 1985, Marty does not have sex with his own mother. Dude, we need to see like an alternate dimension where they hook up. And he's oh, like, man. I don't care. You're <laughs> hot. <laughs> well, she is hot. That no about so that. Rad. Oh my gosh. One of the great things about this movie, besides this very kind of neat little plot that's mostly paradox free, me writing uh, time travel, paradox has become instantly hard to overcome. And this movie does a pretty good job of skirting paradoxes for the most part, for the most part, or at least keeping the audience from thinking about them too much, which helps keep it simple. But besides that, another thing that makes this movie so successful is the cast of this movie. The cast of Back to the Future has got to be one of the all-time great casts. Obviously, you've got the main cast with Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd as Marty McFly and Doc Brown, respectively. And obviously, they're perfect. You know, Rick and Morty, the whole television show is based on that this dynamic. Yeah, I know too. It's like great duos, right? Yeah, exactly. And when you think of great duos, you think of, you know, Marty and Doc. Yeah. Always. Isn't that crazy that he was completely freaking just parroting and just building on that with for Rick and Morty? Because I love Rick and Morty. I mean, it yeah, is dude, me too. the complete opposite of Back to the Future, but yet it's the same thing. Dude, if he was ever going to have sex with his mom, it would be on Rick and Morty, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Rick and Morty, he'd go back to the past every weekend to have sex with his mom. Oh, my gosh. Okay, you know, the, the funny thing is, is that the dynamic almost wasn't there. Yeah. It almost wasn't there because Michael J. Fox was originally not cast as Marty McFly. He wasn't available. He wasn't available. Originally, actor Eric Stoltz had the job. And Eric Stoltz is still acting today and has had a number of television appearances and movie appearances, but never after this rose to the level of main screen draw. Yeah. Because he failed to live up to the director's vision in this movie. Eric Stoltz approached this movie as a method actor and on set refused to be to acknowledge anybody referring to him as anything but Marty. Wow. So much so that when Christopher Lloyd was told that Stoltz was replaced, he said, who's Eric? Because he literally didn't know the guy's name and thought his name, <laughs> he thought his name really was Marty. But oh my God. that kind of like intense performance was not what no. anybody wanted. 
Nobody wanted it. Dude, the the you, producers didn't want it. Zemeckis didn't want it. Christopher Lloyd, just being an actor and being happy to be there, probably still didn't want it. You got to realize and put, put it in context that Michael J. Fox at this point in the mid 80s was one of the biggest television comedian actors, right. comedic actors right. that there was and so beloved. Dude, it's from Silver Spoons, right? No, no. Um, was it was it Family Ties? Family Ties. Yeah, family, family Ties. ties yeah. Family Ties. Thank and, you. Um, yeah, yeah. And it was, dude, I watched every single And he episode. plays a young Reaganite yeah, in that show. Yeah, he's a Reaganite. Hardcore. is basically comic relief for everybody laughing at him being such an arrogant jerk. Yeah. So, yes, I, I have seen the show. It's just been a long time. But just like him on screen, you just could not. You just were like, I love him. I love him. I love him. I, like, so, I mean, that stayed true his entire career. Yeah. Obviously, when you talk about Michael J. Fox, you got to bring up the fact that he later in life was diagnosed with Parkinson's and has been an advocate for uh, Parkinson's awareness for the past 25 years or yeah. so. That's right. And it's, you know, still doing that today, but, you know, it really messed up his acting career pretty bad. But he had tons of other great roles going forward. Teen Wolf. I mean, obviously, Teen Wolf. <laughs> he was on a show called Spin City for, from 1996 to 2002, and it was super popular, and he was a real draw there as well. He's also on a really great movie in the 90s called The Frighteners. He was amazing. I mean, he was one of those rare stars where every time they're on screen, you're just like, you just kind of smile because you're like, oh, he's so great. He's so great. Whereas Eric Stoltz, you know, yeah. it just, I didn't even know who Eric Stoltz was. The, oh, yeah. The, I, I, he, I had to look at his page and be like, oh, yeah, that guy. <laughs> for me, I was like, oh, he was the stoner in friggin' Fast Times at Ridgemont High. So he was uh, Sean Penn's, Spicoli's like best friend. Right. So he falls right. out of the van with them when they're they're getting stoned and they're hotboxing the, the VW van. He stayed in movies. He's still making movies and TV shows Dude, now. Pulp Fiction, he was so good. He's great in Pulp Fiction. He's great. But that's where I know him from. Yeah, he's the drug dealer in Pulp Fiction. He was Yeah, but that character is awesome. Yeah, he was so good. And that's where a method acting performance makes sense. Yeah. In a movie a movie like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. But in Back to the Future, that's not what was called for. Sorry, Eric. Just wrong place, wrong time, man. Winston, what's so crazy is that, you know, you kind of have to step back and say what was nuts about the filming of Back to the Future is they filmed so much of it with Eric Stoltz that just they had to go back and reshoot and reshoot. It cost them $4 million to reshoot all that. That's how much... Eric Stoltz, they get to release all that footage one day. It'll be so crazy, like an alternate cut. He still appears in the film in long distance shots uh, and like wide shots. Yeah. Uh, because he's, he's in the film uncredited. You know, him as Marty does still appear in the film. Wow. Not in any significant way at all, of course. Yeah. That's crazy. That has to show you how wrong he was for the part that they'd filmed that much of it with him just to get rid of him. You got to give the props to Robert Zemeckis to say, you know, we're this far down the line. This shit is not working because I'm sure that it was very difficult to go back and say, man, I made a mistake. At that point, that deep into it, man. Yeah. Well, you know what, though? That just goes to show you that Robert Zemeckis knows what he's doing. You know what I mean? Because replacing, like we said, the cast of this movie and the chemistry of those two actors really, really makes this movie big time. And him having the knowledge to say, no, we need somebody else for this role. We need somebody who's a little bit more lovable. Also kind of childish, too. 
you know, like teenager like, yes. you know what I mean? And Stoltz doesn't really, yes. you know, yeah. even when he plays a teenager, he plays like a corrupt teenager kind of, and that's not what you want from Marty. You want Marty to be a little punk rock, you know, a little bit of a rebel that, you know, he rides a skateboard and everything, but really he's a really nice guy. Yeah. It's kind of, it, that's one of those things you either have it or you don't, you know? Yeah. And um, when where Eric Stoltz is like that dramatic type of an actor and method actor, like, like right. Sean Penn too, you know, method actor. No, even though he's like the greatest actor right. ever, you know, or one of them, it's like, and Eric Stoltz is an amazing actor, but wrong casting. That's just all there was to it. Okay. Yeah. Another great casting thing that I want to point out, another cast member who lasted through all three films is Thomas F. Wilson, who plays Biff. And I think this character is fantastic. I love the character Biff because he really makes a great bad guy for a lot of reasons. One, because... He sucks as a person. You know what I mean? He's a terrible, rotten person. <laughs> but, but yeah. he's super capable and big and strong and not stupid. Even though he says stupid shit, he's not stupid at all. He's a pretty smart, savvy bad guy, especially later on. Especially, well, it's actually not Biff. It's Biff's great, great, great grandfather in the third film, still played by F. Thomas Wilson. That character is a complete badass. Yeah. Like an absolute badass, like can ride horses and rope people and is smart and doesn't get taken, you know, and he's again, an evil piece of shit, but a really capable. And to me, there are two kinds of bad guys to me, the kind of bad guy that you hate because he's a sniveling coward and the kind of bad guy you hate because you're like actually scared of him because he is seemingly bigger and better than you. And that's the kind of character that Biff is. And oh, Again, when Biff is older, the older version of Biff in Back to the Future 2 is super smart. Yeah, super conniving, right? not, you know. Yeah. Right, but, you know, it just goes to show you that he's not dumb. He's just, you know, okay with just being a bully. But I love that casting. Another great role in the first film is Crispin Glover uh, as Marty's dad. He's one of my favorite people ever. I'm not talking about the character. I'm talking about him as a person. Sure, sure. But... That is a really, really good casting job, really good role, plays that role so perfectly. The relationship between Marty and his dad in the 50s when he goes back is fantastic. I think those two guys blend really well on screen together as well. It's a shame that they don't do any other movies together that I know of. No, because Crispin Glover like ex protested and like like blew up and there was a huge lawsuit over the movie. Tell us more about that. Well, Crispin Glover was, I mean, this guy was a lunatic. He was, sure. he was like in the, I remember in the early nineties or even in the late eighties, one of them, I read like a Rolling Stone article about him, about how he had his house in Hollywood where he had like all these like body parts and formaldehyde. I mean, this guy was out there. He was like Marilyn Manson, but like kind of for real because he was so eccentric and weird. But that eccentricities, um, he was like when he saw the um, the end of uh, Back to the Future, the first one, where he's like, wait a minute. So you're telling me that because the, the happy ending is because they're rich now or they have money now. What kind of a message is that? You're sending a message right. that is pure capitalism. And you're right. saying the only way to be happy is, well, is to make money. And he said, I, I don't want any part of that. 
And so he argued and argued and argued with producers and Zemeckis. And finally, they were like, well, we're not going to bring you back. And so right. then in Back to the Future 2, when they needed to use his character, they created a prosthetic of his face and then they put it on another actor. Man, what a fuck you to him, dude. Right? <laughs> yeah. And he was like, well, guess what? Fuck you. That's my likeness. And you're not going to use it. And he brought a lawsuit, which, you know, dude, in Hollywood, I mean, you get blacklisted that way. Right. And um, it took a long time for Chris McGlover to claw his way back up too. to work again. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he did blacklist himself, but he won the lawsuit and uh, they, they it, it established a, a nor, you know, a precedent that said you cannot use another actor's likeness. And I, and that became most actors really need to give him props on that. And the reason is, is because now with the advent of CGI, right, you know, right. Dude, producers, you can deep fake anyone. Yeah, producers are, are you know, they're freaking scumbags. And so if they could say, wait a minute, I'm going to use the likeness of, like they did in Terminator, of Arnold Schwarzenegger, we'll just create a CGI Schwarzenegger or like, uh, like they did with Leia in um, Rogue One, right, when she was younger, and then just say, we're not going to compensate you for it. We're just going to go ahead and use your likeness and create because that's where we're going, you know, with filmmaking. We're getting to the point where, you know, maybe not now, probably pretty close. We can. They did it with General Tarkin, right? In uh, in Rogue One, also, right? right. From um, and they did it with they did it with uh, Luke in the Mandalorian. Yeah, exactly. At the end of the Mandalorian, you know oh, what I mean? So, so yeah. So basically, what they <laughs> what it established, he set the precedent that said, "Don't even think about it." If you're going to use someone's likeness, you need to compensate them like an actor and you need to negotiate with either them or with their estate. And right. so, uh, so you know, I'm sure now a lot of people are like, dude, Crispin Glover was forward thinking and stood his ground. But he, you're right. I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. I think the guy rules. Uh, you know what I mean? I, he's, he's definitely a little bit unhinged, but you know. Oh, like, he's I mean, complete. Have you seen yeah, any yeah. of his films? Uh, well, I saw. Um, no, I'm talking about the films that he produces and and directs. Oh no, oh, I have not. Oh, go on YouTube. There. Okay, I will. Like, I will. What was that? Get rid yeah, of- I mean, but I like I like what was that when I watch movies. Uh, eat a lot of edibles and and Chris <laughs> over because he is like out there, man. He is out there, and I love that though. You know, you gotta love. He's an artist. So okay, so Back to the Future one. Big success, huge success, biggest movie of the year, gigantic box office success, catapults all of its stars into fame. Three hundred eighty-one million. Yeah, like an insane amount of money. You know what I mean? A huge return. Then the next thing that Zemeckis does is Amazing Stories with Spielberg. Mm. I don't know if they'd ever worked together directly, but they did. They worked together the next year on Amazing Stories, which was a movie, you know, in segments, and he was one of the directors, and Spielberg was another director. Then two years after that. He made one of the most revolutionary films ever made, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which I, I don't know if you've seen that movie lately, but that movie holds up to this day. Really? And oh man, it's so good. The it's premise so good. is oh, so cool. The premise is cool. The actual filmmaking itself is so cool. And it's got such good acting in it, man. Bob Hoskins crushes at that. And Christopher it. Lloyd, who plays the villain, is incredible in that movie. Wow. And not to mention all the voice acting from all the animated characters. So another triumph for this director in the 80s. And then he closes out the 80s the next year with Back to the Future 2, 
which he got to double his budget. He got a $40 million budget and still got a $332 million box office gross. You know, so a little bit more money spent to make it and a little less money made, but still a gigantic success, a huge box office success. I don't know if you knew this, but you talk about producers and how swarmy they are. Dude, they were trying to like uh, part of the studio and producers were trying to say, listen, we've got some money that for Back to the Future 1, where if we don't use a DeLorean and we use a Mustang, they're going to give us like $75,000. So let's go ahead and change the DeLorean to to a Mustang. Wow. How crazy is that? But, you know, they rejected that, right? (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's kind of cool of Zemeckis too, you know? I mean, okay, so another bit of trivia is that DeLorean, and I can't remember his first name, but the guy who actually designed the DeLorean vehicle and started his own car company. He was a GM executive who like went out on his own and made the DeLorean and it was not successful really. But he actually wrote Zemeckis a letter one day that just thanked him profusely for like making his car into such an iconic vehicle when it had really been like a commercial flop when it had come out in like the seventies. Well, did he write it from prison? Cause he went to prison. <laughs> oh really? Tell, tell me about that. Oh yeah. DeLorean. Well, it's an awesome story, man. I yeah, think there's I a documentary it. out there, but he, when the car company was failing and I think they only made like under 10,000 of the cars. So they're super freaking rare right now. Right. Um, but the, um, and, and if you think about it, like how many failed cars are absolute cultural icons? Isn't that yeah, kind of dude, weird? Yeah. Yeah, America loves uh, a misprint, you know? <laughs> yeah. Collectors do, at least. Oh, my gosh. Well, what happened was when the uh, when the car company, you know, started to fail either from excess costs or whatever, it was very different to try and build a car at that point. It was so monopolistic, and the car companies created everything in-house, the windshield wipers. So you had to try and do all those things where now you have different little part makers that you could buy things from and put together uh, your own car. So I saw, I I watched a documentary on that, on why the DeLorean failed. But one of the things that, one of the, uh, when they got into trouble, what happened was um, he he was like, I I don't want to fail. I don't want to fail. So he started smuggling cocaine. (laughs) And he freaking, yes, and he got (laughs) caught freaking like with a suitcase of cocaine. And freaking got arrested. I remember all this. And it was like, what? And uh, went to prison, man. Yeah, but because he was an auto executive, he was probably only in prison for like eight months. Oh, of course. And then had had like two years of of house arrest or something. Exactly. Uh, Exactly. Because, you you know, America's awesome. Two different justice systems. Of course, yeah. So uh, Back to the Future 2 and Back to the Future 3 come out back to back. They're, you know, 89 and 90. And they started filming Back to the Future 3 as soon as Back to the Future 2's production was wrapped. So they really were back to back as far as being released and being filmed. I uh, really didn't prepare myself with a ton of trivia for the second two movies, you know. But one thing I want to say about the second movie is the sports almanac prop and plot device in the second movie has always been one of my favorite, most interesting plot devices ever. And it's definitely a thing that a lot of other movies and time travel stories since then have sort of made reference to as well. The idea that, you know, if you have the results of all of these sports events, you can go back and make yourself rich that way. Um, Uh. 
Uh, I love that. I remember seeing, like I said, that was just like rewatching the movie. I was like, oh my gosh, that is so freaking such a great like plot point, right? And such a great MacGuffin. Right. That they're, everybody's trying to get this home and I, I thought that was just genius. And there's some really cool, you know, obviously the, um, the hoverboard, we've mentioned that a few times now, was a really iconic thing from Back to the Future 2. But like you say, Back to the Future 2, in a lot of ways, did kind of disappoint people. It wasn't quite, didn't quite have the feel of the first movie, even though, again, having watched all three of them recently, I think they're all great movies. Dude, what's crazy is that Back to the Future 2, even though it wasn't necessarily, you know, the critical, like, darling that number one was, it still grossed $335 million. Yeah, it's huge. huge, Again, it's huge. Huge movie. Yeah, it's a gigantic movie. You know what I mean? And, you know, it was like the third highest grossing movie of that year behind, like, like, Batman and the third Indiana Jones movie. Or something like that. And not only what's what was crazy is that not only did they uh, replace Crispin Glover, but they also replaced Claudia Wells, right. who had who was uh, Jennifer Parker, right. Marty's girlfriend, and replaced her with, with Elizabeth. Yeah, Shearer. the most beautiful woman of all time, Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> or, or one of dude, them. That's one of those where you're like, dude, how much do you regret? You know, it was a sad situation. Her mother right. had cancer, and so she right. wanted to attend to her mother, but man. How much has that got to haunt you where you're like, man, I could have been in all three movies, you know? Well, you know, you got to do what you got to do. Life goes on besides these. Yeah, you, know, you got to do what you got to do, man. Yeah. 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 And, and like I said, I'm going to once again shout out Thomas F. Wilson because, okay, this in the first movie is really just like a high school bully. You know, he's like a classic high school date rapist bully. Mm-hmm. And kind of, a, you know, a seems kind of like a lunkhead because even though, you know, he's a very capable guy. Uh, captain of the football team and all that stuff. He um, mixes metaphors, which was actually Thomas F. Wilson's ad lib, the make like a tree and get out of here or that kind of thing. Yeah. Like that was his idea to make his character say stuff like that. He also had his character say the word butthead. He, He thought of that too, which is iconic for that character as well. Oh, he did? Yeah. Uh yeah, So in the first movie, he basically is just like a bully. But the second movie, he plays three different versions of himself, of that character, yeah. of Biff. He plays young monkhead Biff again. He plays old man Biff, who was unsuccessful, but is a super smart, super calculating, conniving guy. And he plays successful, super corrupt, ultra-rich town leader Biff, yeah. who has taken advantage of the book his whole life and become like the luckiest man in the world. And all three are executed wonderfully. He does such a good job with all three characters. I'm super impressed by him. Well, it's kind of like what you said, where I didn't really appreciate how good of a job he was doing until I saw him play the cowboy. Oh yeah, that's that's how I want to transition. Because like I say, we can, you know, everybody's seen Back to the Future 2, you you know what's happening. And then the next year comes Back to the Future 3. It's got a $40 million budget too. It only makes $246 million only. But, you know, if you look at that without looking at the numbers of the previous two movies, that's a huge success. Still a gigantic blockbuster. Yeah. In this plot, they all get sent back to the 1880s and they're all there trying to figure out how to get the DeLorean to work again without fuel to make it go 88 miles an hour, which is another one of the um, plot gimmicks is that the vehicle has to be going that fast to uh, time travel. Don't think too hard about that one, I guess. Uh, Dude, I get get so – I was so, like, confused at the start of number three, like, where I'm like – but it was really part of all the different plot twists at that point. I'm like, wait a minute. 
How in the world? So one Marty, I feel like I'm talking about Rick and Marty right, right now. Where I'm like totally stoned out of my mind. I'm like, what are they talking about? So it's like he goes, Marty, one Marty goes back to the back to the future, right? But one Marty doesn't, and the and the another Doc Brown goes to 1885. 1885. And then yeah. Marty's and then Marty's stuck in 1955. And then they find a letter. He goes to the dock and they have a letter that tells him where to find the DeLorean and how to fix it. As soon as he gets that letter, I was like, okay, what the heck? And then that he goes back that dock in 1955 helps the Marty get back. See how much like Rick and Marty it is. Well, that's okay. So when you start talking about these, when you start talking about time travel, you start, talking about paradoxes and, right. and it does make your head hurt. It definitely, you know, like if you try to, no, yeah. if you think about it too hard, you're just like, wait a second, what, wait, can that be possible? And then sometimes you're like, yeah. And then you'll think about the exact same plot point at a different time and be like, can that be possible? And then that Marty goes back right. and he has to rescue the future, one of the future or the future. So that Marty uh, will ever exist no. in the first place. Yeah, and that's, sort of, that's sort of another plot point. Another great little highly visualized plot point of the series is the disappearing photographs. Yes, yes. Which I, has always been kind of a fun little... So thing. genius. Corny and super unrealistic, but super genius for a filmmaker. You know what I mean? Yes, because it's such a visual medium. Yeah, it, right? it makes it so easy for us to go, oh, if this doesn't happen, he'll disappear from history. You know what I mean? <laughs> it makes total sense. You know, I'm going to be honest with you, Back to the Future 3, even though I don't think it's the best of the movies, might be my favorite of the movies. Yeah, I, I, it was the one where I was like, okay, this is a really freaking good installment. It was like when I watched 2, good. When I watched 3, again. Even when I saw it initially, I was like, wow, this is a really good movie. I enjoyed it. It's even good as a Western. If you just look at it outside of, the, you know, it's sci-fi comedy elements. It's actually a fairly good Western. And once again, Thomas F. Wilson brings it so hard because Mad Dog Tannen might be the one of the best bad guys in movie history. <laughs> he's so good. His acting is so good. Yeah, because right? he does a great job because he's still Biff too. You know, he's still that character, but he's also this badass gang leader, like cowboy, who's awesome at riding horses, awesome at shooting. He's got like perfect aim with a pistol. He's tough. He's way more dangerous. Way more dangerous. Way, way more, more dangerous. dangerous. Yeah. After having watched these movies again, I really got to hand it to Thomas Wilson because like he really did come correct as the villain in that series big time. Also, I really like the kind of endearing way they wrap it up with Doc deciding to stay behind in the 1880s. And that's like, you know, where his character's ultimate story ends. And I think that's great. You know what I mean? Like this guy who's obsessed with the future, obsessed with the future, ends up being like, you know what, man, now that I've been living as a blacksmith back in the 1880s, I'm cool with it. I like this even better. To me, that sort of reflects maturity. Like you said, that the first film, they come back and rich, being rich is like the, the ultimate goal. You know what I mean? And they're now, they've got all the money they want and all that. And how that's not a great moral. The end of Back to the Future 3 definitely turns that ending on its ear. Definitely um, takes the opposite approach to giving a happy ending, you know? Yeah, no, it was really cool, man. I really enjoyed it. Um, this is, I don't know if you knew this, but there was there were one of the script uh, points for the first one. I was, uh, I, I came across this and I was like, man, that is crazy. 
at first, the script, they wanted it to end with Marty jumping into a fridge and protecting himself from a nuclear <laughs> reactor explosion. Did you know this? Wow. Wow. I've, uh, I think I've seen that somewhere before. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> from a friggin' Spielberg movie. Right? Yeah, wow. From, that uh, is, you know, it's, uh, I had heard that Indiana Jones. Yeah, I had heard that a bomb was, because they actually have a, a foreshadowing in that movie for that moment, because there is a bumper sticker in the movie that says one nuclear bomb can ruin your whole day. Yep. And that stayed in. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, but the rest did not make it. That cut didn't make it, which, you know, honestly glad for that. The refrigerator bomb scene is one of the corniest scenes in any movie I've ever seen in <laughs> was that kingdom of the crystal skull. Yes, exactly. exactly. Thumbs down. I know. Spielberg, what I know. Are you doing that was so bad. Dude, you know what's okay? So let now it's conspiracy theory time. Okay. We always have to go to conspiracy theories. There is an online conspiracy theory. There are some videos, of course, YouTube is how we learn everything nowadays. Right. But there's a conspiracy theory that says that these movies predicted 9-11. Oh, okay. Uh, let's hear about it. So think about how the, at the end of, or at the beginning of, uh, of Back to the Future, the first one, what do we have? We've got uh, Middle Eastern terrorists, right? The Libyans. Right? Libyans, right? Instead of Saudi Arabians, but we'll just call them Middle East, Muslim, right. whatever you want to call them. And so, which is very similar to 9-11. And instead of the Twin Towers, they're at the Twin Mall. What is it? The, the Twin, Twin Pines Twin, Mall. Twin Pines Mall. Yeah, dude. And there are all these other things that are like, look at how here, I think it's in um, number two, how they show video of the World Trade Center or something like that. And also, also they talk about how Zemeckis um, directed the movie. Uh, what was the movie? Walk? Yeah. The documentary? The, about the walking Walk. The Walk. Yeah. yeah, dude. And so they're like, dude, he knew about it. And that's why he directed. Anyways, go on to YouTube and watch it. It is utterly just like your jaw will hit the floor. It's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> okay, so here's some, okay, I just looked up this conspiracy theory. Here's some other points. They show the clock on the watchtower. It's at 9.55, so the hands point to 9.11. Oh. <laughs> All right, what else? Give me another one. I think the two points we've covered are the most important like parts of this conspiracy theory. It's crazy, right? It's crazy. You know what's cool, so cool, man, is that nowadays, here's the reality. If you're like a believer in conspiracy theories, the cool thing is you can find them for anything you want to believe. Oh, yeah. Right. You're like, I don't care. You know what? I'd rather I don't like this shoe. So guarantee you go on YouTube. There's some kind of conspiracy theory about that shit. Right. That'll bolster your already existing belief. And the conspiracy go theories have gotten, have gotten so. OK, I, I miss the days when conspiracy theories had to at least be grounded in some something that was believable, if that makes sense. Like, for example, Roswell, we talked about that earlier. You know, there really was some sort of wreckage there. You know what I mean? And that supposedly getting overblown into all the stuff that it, you know, became was a hot air balloon or whatever, or a uh, weather balloon or whatever happened. At least something took place that made it seem like the conspiracy theory could be possible. And that's the way it was for a long time. The 9-11, the truthers, you know what I mean? There are, you know, that documentary, uh, Fahrenheit 9-11, had some good points. You know, I mean, most of them could be argued rationally, but it did make some good points. 
these well, days. Hold on. 9-11 was the one done by uh, Michael Moore. Right. Fahrenheit 9-11. And the, but there was another one done. It was, dude, what was the name? Fahrenheit 9-11. I mean, I don't know. Oh, was it really? That's the, and the, there was another that's the one. That, loose change. Oh, yeah. Loose change. Loose change. Oh, yeah, and Loose Change. That's right. I've watched both of those. Fahrenheit 9-11 and Loose Change. And they both make pretty okay. good points. And then there's Fahrenheit 9-11, the, sort of like the counterpoint to those movies. Yeah. Uh, which also makes okay. good points, in my opinion. But what I'm really trying to get at is that, like, conspiracy theories used to be grounded in fact. Yeah, when you start going flat Earth, you're right, you're, right, exactly. You're, you're getting out on a limb. <laughs> to, to These be days, because of QAnon, do, <laughs> facts don't have anything to do with it. Like, there's a literally a group of people in Dallas, Texas, who are camping there right now because they believe that John F. Kennedy Jr is going to show up there and be Donald Trump's running mate in the 2024 election. JFK Jr. has been dead since the year 2000. He's dead. There's no possible explanation why a rational person could believe that. There's no basis. Dude, he got, you don't know what really happened. He got friggin' beamed up from a UFO. (laughs) <laughs> when he was flying his Cessna and he's freaking coming down, dude, this is all about to happen. And other, other people were like, oh, also JFK is still alive and he'll be there too. The real uh, one, like, he would be uh, like 101 years old or something like that. At this Maryland, point. And Maryland and Maryland. Right. And Elvis and everybody. <laughs> but that's my point is that like all the conspiracy theories these days, they're just so bizarre now like they don't have to make any sense at all i know dude that's what it's like I, that's like one of my biggest like things that i'm bummed about is the fact it that is a bummer. it's been co-opted conspiracy theories used to be so cool and now you're kind of like dude do i really want to talk about conspiracy theories anymore, <laughs> yeah not even you know? it's almost you know and we love our conspiracy theories here too actually you know what would be really cool yeah, x-files we should yeah well i was you know what's really funny is i just watched the episode of the x-files it's the season five premiere where the season four cliffhanger is that Scully tells an FBI board of investigation that Mulder killed himself. But the season five premiere reveals that that's not the case, but really he's been demonstrated that all of the alien sightings and everything, it's a conspiracy being played against him specifically. But when I'm watching it, I'm just like, yeah, I love, I love the conspiracy theories. I love how this ties them all together and everything. I think we should do an episode just about conspiracy theories and just name all, uh, name all the ones we, we can. I think that'd be a fun. That would be cool. That would it's be not exactly really, a science really fiction cool. thing, but it kind of is. So, oh, dude, there will be so many. We can just talk about sci-fi conspiracy theories yeah. to narrow it down. Yeah, yeah, I mean, sure, but I wouldn't mind throwing them all in there. You know, sometimes, <laughs> so, sometimes, you know, cryptozoology isn't science fiction, but it's kind of like science fiction, you know? Yeah. You know, like scientifically speaking, a Yeti could exist. That's true. Well, dude, I tell you what, man, we're going down a rabbit hole and that's okay. But I was, I one time was shooting, um, uh, like a, a documentary type thing for Drew Barrymore's company. And we went up to a, um, all the way up to the border of Oregon and California. And there was a town there called happy. Okay. And it, uh, all, everything there, there's a, they have a, we are filming the a parade for Yeti and, and Sasquatch and all that dude. And these people, we interviewed people and they were convinced several of them that 
all, almost all of them were convinced that friggin' Sasquatch exists, but that he was an interdimensional traveler oh. from another world. And that's why you cannot find him. You know what? Because that makes sense. Or her. Or her. Or them, the, whole race, her. the whole race of them. Yeah, the whole race of them is that because they zip in and out. So it is very sci-fi, bro. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it does. It, it's close enough, so I doubt that our audience is going to be like, "Why are they talking about this? Why?" You know what I mean? I, I feel like most of our audience, if we talk about chemtrails, they're going to be like, "Okay, this is interesting. I hope." Like, right. If you guys hear me say yeah, this, sure. if you guys hear me say this, and you're like, "Don't talk about that bullshit," let me know. You know, hit me up and be like, <laughs> "You know, honestly, trust me when I say that." Even though I love thinking and hearing about chemtrails, about conspiracy theories in general, not just chemtrails, I believe very few of them. You know, I'm again at the at the very bottom of this. I'm I'm pretty much a skeptic. I want to believe, but I find it hard to. Okay, so let's wrap this one up. Well, hold on. Last thing, last thing that I want to talk about because I was just in the UK. They have this organization, and they do this thing. It's called Secret Cinema UK, and what they did was they built a replica of uh, Hill Valley, the town. And you could go into Hill Valley and freaking go to the diner, go to and just check it all out, dude. They have the the tap the clock tower, very cool, all that. Shit. Yeah, and you can see it online. It's on YouTube. So if you're really into it, they just did a um, a thing on I think Stranger Things not too long ago. Also, they re- where they recreated that those sets and all that. So it's super. What, what a great idea, right? And um, yeah, for sure. And I tell you what. I, I, I was thinking about that also is that, you know, when I said that earlier, that what, what this movie really is, is like these writers and producers and Spielberg and Zemeckis, this was like a love letter to the fifties, right? right. Uh, if you think about Stranger Things, it's the same thing. It's, it's a, love a love letter, letter to, to, the, to the 80s. Yes, for sure. So when four comes out season uh, four for, uh, for Stranger Things, we definitely got to do that. Okay. I, I have to catch up. I watched the first two seasons, but I did not watch the third season. So I'll have to catch back up. I, I, I was living in Atlanta when that was being filmed. And one of my, uh, my roommate at the time was actually a stand in on the show. So he was there on the set like every day when they were filming. Wow. So, you know, I have some, I have some ties to that show, some loose ties. So I, yeah, we should, we, we do a stranger things one too. Cause that one's cool. Cause it's also kind of like D and D dungeons and dragons, fantasy stuff too. And I'd like to tie that in a little bit here and there as well, even though obviously this is not a fantasy podcast still, I'd like to tie it in sometimes. Oh yeah, for sure. Okay. So back to the future films, you know, they became iconic. Zemeckis went on to make a bunch of other great films, including the best picture in 1994, Forrest Gump, Contact in 1997, which we've talked about several times, Cast Away, Death Becomes Her, a, kind of an underrated movie, and several others, too. He's still making movies now. He's got a live-action Pinocchio coming out pretty soon. But, you know, I think no matter what he does, it's going to be, you know, even though he's made best picture movies and, you know, a bunch of other very beloved movies, I think it's really hard for him or anybody to top having made the Back to the Future series, you know? Yeah, no no question. No question. I mean, that was lightning in a bottle. But lightning so. in a bottle, for sure. So so what's next, man? What do we want to do after this? I was thinking 1984. We mentioned it. Uh, I don't know if you've got time to, you know, give it a reread at this point. Let's, let, let's try and do it next, late next week. Late next week. 1984, late next week. Okay, I, I, I'll commit to it. 
Awesome. I mean, this awesome. is a good one. Dude, everybody loves it. I know. Yeah. This was great. Everybody loves a fun-loving 80s movie. And, uh, you know, I love talking about it. It's fun for me. You know, it's my it's like my childhood for sure. So. Ah, mine too. All right. All right, brother. All right, man. It's good. Until one. next time. Peace. Later, brother. Guys, if you're enjoying the Infinite Worlds podcast, you could definitely check out more Infinite Worlds related stuff by visiting our website, infiniteworldsmagazine.com. There you can subscribe to Infinite Worlds Magazine. It's a full-color, ad-free science fiction magazine featuring stories, comics, and illustrations from creators all over the world. You can also sign up to our mailing list. You can follow us on Instagram at Infinite Worlds Magazine or on Twitter at IWSciFiMag. Also, you can find Nick the Tooth on Instagram at Nick the Tooth and follow his wild escapades. Theme song was written by Christopher Whitaker. And our podcast is produced by Andrew Alonzo.